0: Welcome to the educational podcast of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. I am Isabel Moreno Hay, Director of the Orofacial Pain Program at the University of Kentucky. The American Academy of Orofacial Pain, also known as AAOP, is an organization of dentists and health providers dedicated to alleviating pain and suffering of patients through the promotion of excellence in education, research, and patient care in the field of orofacial pain and associated disorders. If you would like to learn more about the AOP and its mission, please visit our website at www.aaop.org. In today's podcast, we will be interviewing Dr. Dennis Bailey. Dr. Bailey is a general dentist with a practice limited to the management of sleep-related breathing disorders, utilizing oral appliances, as well as temporomandibular disorders or facial pain and related headaches. He's a graduate of Indiana University School of Dentistry and completed a general practice residency at Miami Valley Hospital in Dayton, Ohio. He's a past president of the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine, is the founder and past chair of the Oral Appliance Section, and served on the Standards of Practice Committee for the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. He frequently lectures both in the U.S. and internationally, and has authored numerous texts, articles, and chapters on the topic of sleep medicine and on the use of oral appliances by the dentist for the management of snoring and sleep apnea. For example, in October of 2001, he co-edited the Dental Clinics of North America entitled Sleep Disorders, Dentistry's Role. In 2010, the textbook that he co-authored with Dr. Atanasio, Dental Management of Sleep Disorders, was released and is now available from Wiley Blackwell. In addition, he was the guest editor for Dentistry's role in sleep medicine in the 2010 March edition in the Sleep Medicine Clinics. In April of 2012, he published in the Dental Clinics of North America a text entitled Sleep Medicine for Dentistry. He's currently a visiting lecturer in the Orofacial Pain and Sleep Medicine program at UCLA School of Dentistry and is the co-director of the Mini Residency in Sleep Medicine for the Dentist. Dr. Bailey is past president of the Colorado Sleep Society and is the chair of the Sleep Medicine Committee for the American Academy of Orofacial Pain from 2012. He has diplomat status in the American Board of Orofacial Pain and in the American Board of Dental Sleep Medicine and is a fellow in the Academy of General Dentistry, the American Academy of Orofacial Pain, and the International College of Dentists. I have had the pleasure of working with Dr. Bailey in the last two years, and it's for me a great honor to have him in today's podcast. I hope you will enjoy. Welcome, Dr. Bailey. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Dr. Bailey, could you please define for us what is sleep medicine and particularly what sleep disorders should a dentist, especially the OFP practicing dentist, be familiar with?
1: Well, let's start with the basic definition of sleep medicine. Sleep medicine really evolved from the research lab, mainly through the University of Chicago, but from some other facilities like Stanford as well. But sleep medicine evolved from the research lab into clinical medicine back in the late 70s. So sleep medicine is really the evolutionary process of research and evolving into clinical practice and clinical education. But it didn't happen quickly. It took a long time for sleep medicine to really be recognized as an entity in medicine like neurology or pulmonary medicine or ENT or any other specialties that were already present. So as such, sleep medicine was sort of uh, enveloping itself into different specialties based upon the interest that was there from, say, the neurologist or the pulmonologist or the EMTs, because they all had a different viewpoint of how sleep medicine actually impacted the patients that they were dealing with. When it comes to sleep disorders and what should the OFP practicing dentist be familiar with, my base statement is they should really have a general understanding of all of the sleep disorders, now, that doesn't mean in great detail. It just means that they should have some knowledge of different sleep disorders and how they may be impacting the patient. This is primarily because many of, many patients present with not just one disorder, say like sleep apnea, but they have a multitude of things that are going on that may underlie some of the other complaints that they have regarding their sleep. But the primary ones that the dentist should be familiar with are obviously sleep apnea because sleep breathing disorders is a a key diagnosis that we get involved in with the treatment utilizing oral appliances. But we should also be able to recognize patients who have insomnia and the different ways insomnia is viewed so that we can help that patient to get the appropriate treatment for their insomnia. Insomnia really occurs mainly with pain patients because the pain disrupts their sleep, the pain interferes with them getting to sleep or staying asleep, and that's really what insomnia is all about. Then they should also be familiar with other disorders such as restless leg syndrome, periodic limb movement, which are categorized on the general heading of movement disorders, and under that uh, general category of movement disorders is sleep ruxism. And so they really all kind of are intertwined in terms of how they relate to these various patients. Another one that's gaining a lot of momentum currently is narcolepsy, because many patients will have symptoms that are similar to sleep apnea, such as daytime sleepiness, or the feeling of not being able to sleep and getting refreshed sleep. And they may think it's sleep apnea when in fact it may actually be a narcoleptic condition. So there's a lot of different things the dentist should be familiar with if you're dealing with pain and understand how and where to direct these patients to get the appropriate treatment. Hmm.
0: So what are the risk factors that are usually associated with these sleep disorders?
1: Literature is clear, and it becomes clear almost by the day or by the week, that many of these sleep disorders are responsible for comorbid with other health-related consequences. Now, in particular, you look at diabetes, you look at high blood pressure, you look at other cardiovascular diseases, particularly atrial fibrillation, you don't have to have just sleep apnea, which is what originally was thought, that it was the sleep apnea that was the main comorbid condition to these other health-related consequences. Insomnia is well-documented in being related to these as are other sleep disorders. But I think it's mainly the insomnia and the sleep apnea that are related to these different uh, uh, health-related disorders that puts the patient at risk for them.
0: And how prevalent are these sleep disorders in the general population?
1: You know, it all depends upon who you read or who you listen to. Uh, there's, there's all the time, and I don't, I don't want to say or implicate them as being contradictory, but there are numbers that are all over the map. And I think part of the problem is, is that it's very difficult to really track who does and who doesn't have some of these problems. But in a general sense, if we go back to the 1990s, when one of the first epidemiologic papers came out uh, from Terry Young and her group, they found that in, in a general sense, and this paper is still referenced today, by the way, and was backed up by other paper in the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine by Bixler. But basically, we're looking at patients who have symptoms, they say it's roughly 4% male and 2% female. If there are no symptoms, and particularly excessive daytime sleepiness, the numbers jump up to 25% male, 9% female. There's been other studies out there more recently that have looked at just sleep breathing disorders in general, uh, that's the one that they seem to track the most. And in general, those patients probably are approaching, or the number of patients are probably approaching 40% of the general adult population who may be at risk for sleep apnea. Now, when you look at other disorders like restless leg syndrome and periodic limb movement, somewhere between 7 and 10% of the population may manifest this but you have to consider that if you have a patient who has a uh, history of bruxism, which on the sleep side is called sleep bruxism, uh, it may actually be a little bit higher than that because of the similarity of the uh, origin of the movement disorder. When it comes to insomnia, you, you have to break it down into, is it acute insomnia or is it chronic? Meaning, is it something that's intermittent that occurs periodically, or is it something that's long standing, more than three months with the patient? And that's really the current classification of sleep disorders, uh, volume three, or edition, third edition, and the way they diagnose it. But you also have to look at it a little differently in terms of a clinical diagnosis. And that is, Is the insomnia sleep onset insomnia, or is it sleep maintenance insomnia? Could be a little bit of each, depending upon the patient. And again, in pain patients, especially if they have comorbid anxiety or depression associated with it, these numbers get pretty high. It's over 50% of the population. Insomnia, in general, is the most prevalent sleep disorder that we deal with.
0: So from the numbers you are giving us, it does sound like these sleep disorders can be quite prevalent in the patient population that a dentist might see in their clinic. So what would you say is the role that a dentist can play in the screening and recognition of these patients? Are there any screening tools that you would recommend uh, to use in order to try to screen and help our patients that might have one of these sleep disorders?
1: There's a variety of screening tools available to us. The most common or most popular ones are like the upward sleepiness scale, which has been around for quite a long time. Uh, The stop bang, which came out about 10, 15 years ago, started out originally as stop, and then they added bang to it because of other issues. That started out as a study that looked at patients who were being assessed for having a sleeping disorder or sleep apnea pre-surgically. Uh, so it, it, it was developed by anesthesiologists. So there's a variety of questionnaires that can be used. There's another one called the Berlin Survey, and there's that can be used. Stanford has one that they put out. But Epworth and StopBang are probably the two most popular. But really, at the beginning, the, the main thing or the, the basic thing a dentist can do is just ask some very simple questions. Are you sleepy during the day? Do you find yourself not being able to pay attention well? Do you find that you get drowsy in sedentary situations? Uh, Various questions that can just be added to a questionnaire that is already used to assess a patient's health and medical history. Those are probably the best ways to do it.
0: So what areas uh, do you think that are relevant from the patient's medical, psychological, and pharmacological history uh, for the screening of these sleep disorders?
1: I would always be weary of patients who are on medication for anxiety, for depression, when in fact it may not appear or seem as though these patients actually are clinically depressed or have anxiety that requires medication. Um, that's probably one of the biggest ones. I would always be suspicious of the patient who comes in on high blood pressure medication as to whether they've been screened for any type of sleep disorder. And I would be particularly concerned about anybody who's a uh, type 2 diabetic who has not had some type of workup for a sleep disorder because just simple snoring has been shown in the uh, Journal of Epidemiology to the uh, positive or related uh, factor when it comes to elevated blood sugar. And when it comes to insomnia, patients who have uh, uh, general insomnia, whether it's sleep onset or sleep, uh, three nights of of sleep or lack of amount of sleep, meaning seven to nine hours per night, their risk having uh, diabetes type two goes up significantly. They've seen a rise in their A1C levels, for instance. So, anybody who comes in who's on medications, I would review why they're on the medication. I would review what was the time that they put on the medication, was there something else going on, and then inquire about their sleep because you can be relatively certain that when a patient is having anxiety issues or is having depressive issues, uh, they were not screened adequately for whether or not their sleep was adequate and whether they slept through the night or whether they got what number of hours of sleep or whether they were able to fall asleep in an appropriate number of minutes.
0: So you had mentioned uh, b- before some uh, some symptoms, like, for example, the excessive sleepiness. Are there any other clinical signs or symptoms that you think a, should, a dentist should be looking for?
1: There are so many things that are present in the oral health of a patient that could be a foregoing sign of a patient who's at risk for a sleep disorder. Now, once again, you know, we always have a focus mainly on the more common sleep disorders, say, for instance, uh, sleep apnea and insomnia, which I've been stressing uh, throughout this uh, discussion. One of the things that leaped out at me a number of years ago was the presence of periodontal disease in patients and the associated risk that those patients had for being at risk for sleep apnea. Uh, It's pretty astounding. The studies are clear that these patients are really at risk. And I've mentioned other people before that Any patient who comes in who has active periodontal disease that's in treatment should really be screened with the Epworth or the stop bang or just asking basic questions about their sleep, for instance, do you snore, uh, as to whether or not they may have some problems this way that could be related to, say, the periodontal disease. And then along with it are other signs that a patient may have uh, intraorally, uh, besides periodontal disease, scalloping of the tongue has been shown in patients who are already diagnosed that had, that had sleep apnea. They, they showed a high incidence of correlation between the scalloping or crenations of the tongue to the patient being at risk for uh, sleeping disorder or apnea and having difficulty falling asleep in an appropriate period of time. Other symptoms are things that might be related to or even signs that might be related to abnormal breathing habits. I'm a big believer in nasal breathing. We've been seeing more and more papers and articles talking about the importance of nasal breathing. But if you've got a patient, for instance, who uh, clearly is a mouth breather, that may be a a dead giveaway that this patient is not getting adequate sleep. When a patient's a uh, heavy mouth breather, oftentimes they're gonna have dryness of the lips, cracking at the corners of the lips, Uh, They may have periodontal disease or more inflammation in the gingiva. Uh, They may have a a coated tongue. And the coated tongue is an interesting one because this uh, can oftentimes point to a higher risk for acid reflux or what's called GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease. And that's something that's uh, linked pretty commonly to a sleep breathing disorder, not just sleep apnea, sleep breathing disorder. And I might take a moment just to make sure that my definition of sleep breathing disorder is uh, understood. When I talk about sleep breathing disorders, I'm talking about it beginning with simply mouth breathing. There doesn't have to be boring. There doesn't have to be apnea. Mouth breathing is not the appropriate route of respiration. In fact, there's a paper out that showed that we should only be breathing through our mouth about 4% of every 24 hour day. So, no breathing is really critical. Uh, other signs and symptoms that the dentist may see is a patient who looks lethargic, a patient, even if they're sitting in there sort of dozing off or, or not being attentive uh, or fitting, they seem to move around and they don't, can't seem to stay still. Uh, or, once again, we'll go to sleep bruxism, which is part of the MUT disorders related to restless leg and periodic limb movements. If there are signs and or findings that are associated with sleep bruxism, that could be another indication that the patient has a sleep disorder.
0: Um, you had mentioned the nasal breathing, and I think it's really fascinating uh, what could we recommend to our patients if we detect that are, they are mainly uh, mouth breathers instead of nasal breathers?
1: Well, the first thing is to understand how to do a nasal examination or a nasal evaluation. There's actually a nice uh, instrument it's called that's available called the NOSE score, N-O-S-E, score. And uh, Basically, it's a one-month assessment as to how difficult it was for a patient to be able to to nose breathe under certain circumstances. And a lot of patients pass off their lack of nasal breathing or their inability to breathe through the nose to, say, allergies or I have this post-nasal drip or when I lie down, I become congested, whatever it might be. But the first thing that I suggest to a patient is just breathe normally through the nose and tell me how it feels. Get air through the nose, both nostrils. If they find that it's difficult, then the next step is to take the fingers and place them at the, the nose, very gently pull outward. This is called the caudal maneuver. And very gently pull out at the corners of the nose and ask if they can feel, or they sense that their breathing's improved. Now, many people, their eyes get big, they go, wow, I can't believe how much air I'm getting. It's a very small amount that you have to open that up. And what you're doing is you're actually opening up what's called the nasal valve, which is an area inside the nose that is boundaried by the inferior turbinate, a little bit of the medial turbinate, and by the nasal septum. And when you open up this nasal valve, it's like a little slit between those structures. You really markedly improve the ability for air to pass through those. Uh, that's the one test that is kind of dramatic in terms of uh, determining if improved, uh, there can be improvement in nasal breathing. Now, if we find that that's the case, the typical thing that I suggest patients is to use some type of nasal dilator. And the one that I like the best is a device called MUTE. It's available now in a lot of pharmacies. I've seen them in Walgreens. I think I've seen them in CVS. You can get them online from Amazon. But then again, what you get from Amazon. Uh, But the bottom line is these devices are placed in the nose. For some people, they can be uncomfortable at first, but they're placed up inside the nose and they just do that gentle tugging, opening of the nasal valve, which improves their respiration. Now, just because you have improved the ability for air to go through the nose doesn't mean they're going to become nose-breathed automatically, because patients who have had difficulty nose-breathing a good part of their life, habituated to oral or or mouth-breathing habits that they have to reverse. And so I, I give these patients exercises to do with the mute device, in while they're awake, to practice nasal breathing so their brain gets used to the fact that they don't have to get the air through mouth to do that. The importance of nasal breathing is really very basic. You breathe through the nose. is an increased amount of nitric oxide. I'll call it misted. That is basically from the paranasal sinuses, misted into the inspired air. In addition to that, the inspired air through the nose is warmed and humidified. It's also filtered. But the warming and humidification, in addition to the misting of the nitric oxide getting to the lungs, nitric oxide acting as a vasodilator improves the absorption of oxygen in the lungs. And part of the reason for this is is that with the increased amount of humidification and the warming goes through the nose, of the air that goes through the nose, there's a second process of warming and humidification in the lungs. So if you mouth breathe, you're going to get air that isn't warmed and humidified adequately. So now the lungs are trying to do the alveoli are trying to do the job that the nose was supposed to help support and the absorption of oxygen, because again, of the lack of nitric oxide as well, is just going to limit or inhibit the amount of oxygen these people have. And so what they basically have is some oxygen deprivation. So they will have increased amounts of mouth breathing. They'll start gapping for air. And so the mouth breathing then lends itself to more labored breathing, which lends itself to snoring, which lends itself to sleep apnea. And it goes on and on from there. So that's my version of why it's important to nose breathe.
0: That is really interesting. Uh, I also wanted to ask you, many colleagues have approached me sometimes asking, what is the relationship between sleep bruxism, which you had mentioned as sleep disorder, and sleep breathing disorders? What is your opinion in that relationship between sleep bruxism and sleep breathing disorder? Is there any relationship between both of them?
1: Well, I will tell you, and I'm not going to give you my opinion. I'm going to tell you what is currently in the literature. And there actually was an article that looked at this, I can't remember the date exactly, but it was in the Journal of Oral Family Pain some years ago. And there's other articles to support this one as well. The bottom line is: people out there have tried to make an association. There is a direct relation between sleep roxism and sleep apnea. This is not the case. Uh, this has not been proven. There's no evidence to support that. Now, they do tend to be more prevalent with one another. Why is that? Well, here's my suspicion: When patients don't sleep well, if we consider sleep architecture, not sleeping well, they're going to have less deep sleep. Now, this is called stage 3, 4, what's now termed N3 sleep. When they have less N3 sleep, there's going to be an increase in other stages of sleep. And the two stages that may increase the most are going to be N2 or stage two non-REM sleep and possibly REM sleep. Now, in addition to that, there's going to be more sleep fragmentation or more disrupted sleep. The bottom line is the majority of sleep narcissism occurs in N2 sleep. So if you have an increase in the amount of N2 sleep because of the fragmentation of sleep that may be associated with a sleep breathing disorder, because sleep bruxism is basically a centrally activated habit as a movement disorder, you're going to have more bruxism that will occur. People say, oh, my bite splint, my sleep appliance, uh, my mandibular repositioning appliance uh, got them to brux less. Well, it may be because you've reduced the amount of N2 sleep and hence you've reduced the amount of centrally mediated sleep bruxism present. That's my short description.
0: So, if we suspect that one of our patients might suffer from a sleep disorder, what is the best course of action that a dentist can take?
1: The best course of action is to have some collegial relationship with the patient's physician or with a sleep medicine specialist. The sleep medicine specialist may be a little bit more difficult for most dentists. Uh, I think you simply get a good history, you make a preliminary finding of what the patient may be at risk for. And that's an important statement to make. You are not diagnosing the patient as apnea. You have merely determined based upon your questioning of the patient and maybe the the surveys or the questionnaires that you've used that the patient is at risk for sleep apnea. Then recommend to that patient that the next best step might be to have a, either a home sleep test or to have a, uh, Polystagram, that's rare these days. So the home sleep apnea test or AAT is probably the best. I would contact the patients in some states, the dental boards, not necessarily uh, anti-dentist referring for a, a home sleep apnea test and work through a variety of companies. If it's something like uh, insomnia, uh, typically what I do is I would ask the patient or suggest to the patient that they may want to have cognitive behavioral therapy. That's been found to be the most effective. See if that might help and try to seek out a cognitive behavioral therapist in their general area. Of the other disorders, I would simply advise the patient. I'll tell you what I did or do in my general practice or my sleep practice. And that's simply to suggest to the patient that because it's been found with restless leg syndrome and periodic limb movement syndrome, that oftentimes these patients have low ferritin levels, the first thing I would suggest is having them go to see their physician and have a ferritin level test and an iron blood test done to determine if maybe iron supplementation might help. I don't do those tests. I suggest to see their physician for them, and I actually give them a little note or send a note to the physician recommending that this is the appropriate step based upon the fact that we've determined this patient's at risk for a uh, movement disorder such as restless leg syndrome or periodic limb movement disorder. Other types of problems, if it's uh, apparently or it looks like it might be apparently narcolepsy or other types of sleep disorders, I would see a medicine specialist that they try to get to see that person or uh, at least try to arrange a consultation with them.
0: So you mentioned the polysomnography in order to help with the diagnosis of the sleep disorders, could you explain to us what are the differences between an overnight study at a sleep lab and the home sleep studies that you mentioned? When should one be recommended over the other one? And what is your opinion on nocturnal pulse oximetry?
1: Well, first of all, there there has never been a clear lineation as who who is the most or the best candidate for a polysomnogram. And I was asking these questions 20-plus years ago in sleep medicine, particularly when I would be at the sleep meeting every year. I think that the majority of patients who have or the the patients who are most at risk for a more severe type of sleep disorder, those are the patients who have more overriding health-related consequences. Those are the people that need to be in the sleep lab. They're, They're the people at greatest risk for having maybe more severe sleep apnea uh, patients who are either morbidly obese or borderline or obese, they should be in the sleep lab seeing and having a polysomnogram. I think there should be uh, sort of a, uh, uh, a consequence of when should they have a polysomnogram and when should they have a home sleep apnea test. Now, the HSAT, what started out as home sleep test, and now it's called home sleep apnea test, it's really a replacement, but it's really just for sleep apnea. It's not going to pick up things that are related to a restless leg or to other types of movement disorders. It's not going to pick up any type of sleep architecture. So it's not going to give us whether they're in REM or not. REM. Although we are seeing now the development of many, many different types of home units that will have the ability to do this. Uh, it's, it's almost exponential in the development. Of these types of uh, uh, units. Home sleep apnea test is really probably the best test to use if there's some discrepancies in the test or there's some concern that it may not be totally accurate based upon the patient's symptoms. Then, possibly uh, referring the patient for a polysomnogram would be the next best step to sort of be confirmatory. Uh, Also, a polysomnogram should always be considered. The patient may have some overriding neurologic condition that could playing into their sleep or the disturbance or the sleep disorder that they have. Uh, you, you need that EEG component to be adequately patient. Pulse oximetry is really, really interesting and gaining at this time. There are many, many studies out that are exclusively that pulse oximetry, particularly when you look at a 4% desaturation, is very closely linked to the uh, AHI, and this could be a very good uh, piece of technology that could be used by the dentist either for uh, evaluating these patients after they've been screened or they want to use this as a way of following patients up for oral appliance therapy. But I think pulse oximetry is developing a key role as we speak.
0: And lastly, I always like to end up this podcast by asking our guest um, how do you envision the future of the field of sleep medicine?
1: That's a very interesting question because if you had asked me that question uh, two months ago, I might have had a different response. Uh, I think, based upon what's going on in the world now with the COVID 19 and some of the other implications to Uh, our other health-related issues, I think that sleep medicine has a very, very bright future. The unfortunate part is it's downplayed. What I mean by that is that, that the average number of hours of education that a physician gets in sleep is two hours or less in medical school. And sleep is really a key component to boosting our immune systems. So I think that anyone who's interested in sleep medicine and learning more should do so because I think the future is very bright for sleep medicine. I think it's going to grow quite as fast as it in the early 2000s that I was involved, but I think it's still going to grow considerably. And I think the role that the dentist has in sleep medicine is going to grow even more. That doesn't mean just oral appliance therapy and help identify a patient who may be at risk for any of these different types of sleep disorders that we've discussed and getting that patient to the appropriate uh, position or the appropriate therapy that may be necessary to help them to have an improved number of hours of sleep. Lastly, the best thing about sleep medicine when it comes to the dentist is educating the patient. Dents are great at educating patients been doing that with prevent our, our entire lives and so it's very important that the patient hear about these things from someone who has a general understanding of sleep and sleep disorders and how they can help patients to a better quality of life in fact there's, there's a paper out that I think is excellent it's a short paper but it talks about health-related quality of life and I related quality of life is extremely important for us to understand because it's one metric that's missing when that's how patients are doing with the various therapies that they're utilizing to treat their sleep disorder.
0: That is really very interesting. Thank you, Dr. Bailey, so much for sharing your knowledge with us.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I hope that this year that people can take home and utilize in their practices. I wish everyone a great deal of success in the future as this uh, COVID-19 thing winds down and as we uh, move into the future. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: If you would like to learn more about this subject or any other topics, please don't hesitate to visit our website at www.aaop.org. It was my pleasure to share this time with you. Thank you for listening. The AOP podcasts are now available in iTunes. I want to thank Dr. Elfati Eisa for his technical support.